Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dorwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this week, we're going to be looking at the middle of games, what we do between the beginning and the ending. Before we launch into that, um, yeah, let's look at a few things that have happened recently. Well, first of all, it seems to have been a good week or so for uh, stuff that we've worked on actually coming out. Oh, and the big one, obviously, is the print edition of Pop Cthulhu. Yeah! Yeah, we've actually received our contributors' copies of Pop Cthulhu now, and it is a gorgeous book. Yeah, looking good. I got a big uh, white parcel come through the door the other day, and uh, I thought, what's this? Because I forgot that it was going to be coming out this week, but um, yeah, cool. Looks nice. And what else came out, Scott? Yes, the print edition of The Things We Leave Behind also came out. That's the modern-day scenario collection that I contributed to, uh, published by Stygian Fox. And you said you'd also received your copy of Lovecraft-esque. Uh, one of them, yeah. Um, I got. I was quite surprised the uh, the paperback turned up. I was thinking, hang on a minute, I, I pledged significantly more than a paperback. What the hell? And went back and found that it might actually, yeah, my pledge did come with something more than just a leather-bound copy. So. And while we're mentioning things that we worked on, um, if you'll forgive me just doing a little light pimping of my work here. Okay. Um, there's a scenario that I wrote a while back for uh, The Jaws of the Six Serpents, sword and sorcery role-playing game published by Silver Branch Games. It was supposed to go into a collection that never happened. Uh, so Tim Gray, who runs Silver Branch, is now putting it out as a standalone PDF. It's called The Blizzard's Teeth. If you like kind of dark sword and sorcery stuff, it might hit the spot for you. Where would you find that? On drive through or...? Uh, I believe so. It's not actually out at the time of recording, but probably will be by tomorrow. So it, you know, there'll be plenty of time for me to update the show notes with a link to it by the time we put this out. Mm. And Scott, I understand you were busy last weekend. You went down to the British Museum? Yes, the British Museum hosted a sort of seminar, um, yeah, a seminar, or series of seminars on the folk horror revival. This is a thing that started out as a Facebook group a few years back uh, with a few hundred members and has grown to about 15,000 people who are interested in, um, well, folk horror and the fact that this almost forgotten subgenre of horror, which, which was big in the 60s and 70s, is starting to make a comeback now. So what are we talking, kind of like Wicker Man being folk horror? Yeah, they talk about the big three influential folk horror films, and that's The Wicker Man, uh, Witchfinder General, and Blood on Satan's Claw. But there have been a whole load of uh, filmmakers, writers, artists, uh, musicians who have been influenced by these works and the works that they in turn were influenced by, and it seems to have snowballed into a new movement in recent years. And it's not just Morris dancing, right? Not just, but obviously that plays a huge part of it. You, you can't understand the true nature of horror without Morris dancing. But I think this might make an interesting topic for an upcoming episode. Uh, just getting into the roots of folk horror and defining what it is. Because I think there's an awfully big overlap between folk horror and some of the stuff we see in Call of Cthulhu with the sort of corruption of nature, the use of landscape, uh, these isolated weird places, and these old myths coming back to haunt people. I've always been looking for an excuse to watch Blood on the Satan's Claw, so this sounds like a plan. And we started off this week, my next chapter for Poison Tree. 
Yeah, that was a very, very interesting introduction. It was sort of an odd combination of uh, doing a lot of in-depth character development and then suddenly being thrown in at the deep end. Without wanting to give any spoilers, this is the campaign that we're working on, sort of multi-generational campaign that we're working on for Pelgrane Press. And this one is set in the uh, 1914, at the start of the Great War, the European War. I actually silenced everybody for a few minutes. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Damn right you did. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a very unusual setup in that uh, it's it's a side of the Great War you don't normally see. In, instead of playing soldiers or the men sent away to war, we're basically all playing the women who were left behind. And, yeah, I, I think that's a, a nice spin on things. Hmm. No trenches. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I can reassure you there's no trenches. What's next, Scott? You make me do this every bloody time, don't you? Yes, what is next is the Lovecraftian word of the... Weak. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. And the word is Matt. And this week it is... <laughs> it's almost just like saying me... Decadent. An adjective? One, being in a state of decline or decay. Okay, maybe not me. Two, marked by or providing unrestrained gratification. Self-indulgent. Three, of or relating to literary decadence. But it's also a noun. One, a person in a condition or process of mental or moral decay. Two, a member of the decadence movement. See above. This really seems to sum up the ideal attributes for a Call of Cthulhu keeper to me, but... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the game's been out for 35 years, so those of us who started out with it are definitely in a state of decline now. <laughs> well, I was thinking the process of mental and moral decay. Um, <laughs> Speak for yourself, monkey boy, I'm fine. Twitch, twitch. <laughs> but I, I recall this word being embraced by a team on The Apprentice. You know, at the start of The Apprentice, the two teams have to come up with names for their teams and it's usually things like energy and uh, you know words that kind of um, sum up sort of a positive thing and one of the teams came up with the name decadence because they saw it as a very positive thing they sort of see it as a word meaning kind of luxuriance and wealth yeah i think the reason for that is the more common usage these days is probably the self-indulgent self-gratifying version rather than being in a state of decline or decay mm. Yeah, I wonder how much of that turnaround came about as a result of the decadent literary movement and artistic movement back at the end of the 19th century. So at the turn of the century, later 19th century, early 20th century, there was an artistic decadent movement with people such as Oscar Wilde. And initially, this term decadent was a term that critics used against the movement as a negative but the artists and writers that were part of that movement actually embraced the term decadent as a as a, a badge of honor and you know the, the the movement became known as the decadent movement and that probably has more to do with the the rehabilitation of the word the the fact that we tend to see it well, maybe not in the positive light that you were talking about with The Apprentice, but as a sort of naughty word rather than you know, a way that you'd really denigrate someone. Lovecraft, on the other hand, did use it very much in a denigrating way. I mean, Lovecraft, you know, being, um, being sort of the classicist he was and being very much against the modernist movement, 
I, I think he tended to see a, a modern life as being decadent, this slide into decay after this, this imagined golden era that had passed. And he definitely used it in application to the old ones quite a lot, the older things in Mountains of Madness, when they're looking at the sculptures on the, the bas-relief on the walls. And he talks about the, the decadent um, stage of their artwork sort of falling into decline and so on. That, that really struck me when I first read that. And this all seems to very much play into Lovecraft's gothic roots again. I mean, this is a word that I can imagine, you know, being probably more associated with Poe than with Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, with, for example, stories like The Fall of the House of Usher, which I, I see as being a, a, a classically decadent story. Yeah, I was just thinking pretty much exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, and so Lovecraft, at least in his early tales, built very much on Poe. And so I can see this this sort of Gothic and Poe influence leading to his embrace of decadence to the extent where he used it, or used the word decadent, yeah, 32 times in his fiction, uh, mostly as an adjective. And one of the big ways in which Lovecraft used it was in a, a sort of classist way, really, in that when he's, he's referring to poor rural folk or um, what he refers to, you know, you will hear in one of the upcoming uh, sound bites as white trash, then he is fairly free to use the word degenerate about them and their lifestyles. So he's classist as well as, as, well as racist. Hey. And in this instance, in the quote that Matt's about to read, he mentions Native American people, and that, that phrase caught my eye. But he's not talking about American Indians and the Native American tribes that lived in the Americas. He's on about just American people. Well, I, I think specifically white people. Yeah, So should we look at that quote and how Lovecraft used the word decadent in his writings? Indeed, from Beyond the Wall of Sleep. Among these odd folk who correspond exactly to the decadent element of white trash in the South, law and morals are non-existent, and their general mental status is probably below that of any other section of the Native American people. And from the Dunwich Horror. Less worthy of notice was the fact that the mother was one of the decadent Waitleys, a somewhat deformed, unattractive albino woman of 35, living with an aged and half-insane father about whom the most frightful tales of wizardry had been whispered in his youth. And finally, from At the Mountains of Madness. It was probably sheer irrational instinct which made us dim our single torch, Tempted no longer by the decadent and sinister sculptures that leered menacingly from the oppressive walls, and which softened our progress to a cautious tiptoeing and crawling over the increasingly littered floor and heaps of debris. And on to our main topic the middle of games, what we do between the beginning and the end. Make shit up. <laughs> Actually, that's <laughs> I, I Say that again, Matt. I, I think that's good. We just make shit up. There you go. Job done. <laughs> that, b- bizarrely, that is actually one of the handwritten annotations I've got in my script here. <laughs> word for word. <laughs> but is there more to it than that? Yes, there are the means by which we make shit up. There's the structure that we apply to this shit. There's the way that we draw the appropriate shit out of our players and stamp down the shit we don't want to see at the table. We're going to cover a few points, things like how to keep up the pace, scene framing, how to build atmosphere and how to handle twists and turns and surprises in the game. 
We've already discussed beginnings in an earlier episode, and we will follow this up uh, later on, obviously, with an episode on endings. The trilogy concludes. And last time we left it with the opening scene. So once you've had your opening scene, this is kind of some of the things that we do following that. Well, let's start off then with a look at how we keep up the pace in the game. Something we all do as GMs, I think, to a greater and lesser degree, is to manage the group of players and facilitate the game actually happening. The GM role doesn't have to be a, you know, a too dictatorial a one. It can be a very cooperative one. But I think that the role of getting everybody together and balancing the, the kind of spotlight time for players is something that generally falls to the GM. And this is certainly something we've touched on before, that whole idea of how you bring out the quieter players without making them feel uncomfortable, how you perhaps stop uh, the, the more domineering players from completely dominating the table, again, without being rude to them. And it's a subtle series of social skills, but ones that are very, very well worth developing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one thing I always do. It's always at the forefront of my mind of keeping an eye on who's the quiet one at the table. Because they're the, usually the ones I will throw a curveball at or throw some juicy stuff at um, to help bring try and bring them more in, to be more engaged at the table. And you kind of see how they respond, don't you, as players? And you, if you get the impression they want to kind of sit back and not do too much, then you maybe don't overly push them, but you you, you know you give them the uh, the in if they want to take it. Yeah, exactly that. So following the opening scene, generally I don't have like, a subsequent scene defined as such i might have a a range of things in my mind that they might go on to but often it'll be the case that i'll put the ball in their court and say okay well what are you doing next and the the opening scene is kind of designed to to somehow introduce a mystery or introduce what's happening in the scenario so that the players can can take the lead then and, and you know decide where they're going next if they decide to split up as is often the case I think one thing that one has to do as a, as a GM is keep a clear idea of who is where. Mm-hmm. There's a tendency for some players to want to be omnipresent. And wherever you sort of say, OK, well, you're in the bedroom now. Oh, yes, I'm there. And, and you're, you guys are down in the, in the cellar. And that player's down there as well. And at some point, you've got to sort of say, OK, well, where are you? Where are you? And where are you? And kind of keep a tight rein on things. Your location is something that got a lot of people burnt as witches. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes I'll go to the extent of actually having a map, like a floor plan and counters or just writing on a, a dry whiteboard to just keep track of where people are. Take measure to make sure how far they can move. Well, not that degree, <laughs> but, you know, five foot strike or whatever it is. Yeah. One of the things that I think can really bog down a game is if one or more players doesn't feel engaged with what's going on. Maybe this isn't the game that they wanted to play. Uh, maybe their character isn't getting enough spotlight time. Maybe they created a character that they don't feel like they're enjoying playing now. Maybe they just can't work out what the hell to do next. I think sometimes the player feels a sense of disengagement because it's not quite what they expected and they don't know quite how to act. It's almost like they're second-guessing how they should act and not really being sure what that is. And and I just try to encourage people and sort of say, well, you know, what, what do you want your character to do now? Yeah. Um, and they might feel that it's kind of going against the scenario or going against what's expected of them. Yeah, I mean, actually, that's a, a really good point. This is something that always boggles me when I'm, I'm running particularly convention games, but to a lesser extent other one-shots and maybe the occasional campaign 
which is, you know, if the players come up with a cunning solution to a problem or something like that, and things go in a somewhat unexpected direction, I will quite often get players coming up to me afterwards saying, oh, I'm sorry about that. I hope I didn't break the game. Yeah. <laughs> sort of, no, no, th- th- this is what I GM for. You know, if it had <laughs> just gone exactly the way I'd envisioned it or it was written in the scenario, then I'd be bored. No, thank you for making it interesting for me. You're really good at this, Matt. I think when I've played in some of your scenarios, I think, and then I've read them afterwards, and I think, oh, we didn't do that. (laughs) And I think the best games I've played, well, not necessarily the best games I've played, but some of the most fun games I've played, I've had the impression that we're playing the scenario that the keeper or GM had kind of got planned. But then afterwards, I realised that, you know, I, I talked to somebody else who had been in that same game, you know, in a later slot. And they said, oh, you know, we didn't do anything like what you did. And I'm like, oh, okay, so the scenario was quite different. So you, you're quite willing to embrace things and go with them. And I think, I think, I guess the, the tip here is not only to kind of go with what the players are doing, but not give the impression to them that they're actually deviating from, you know, whatever scenario you've kind of got planned. It's one thing that I've been very conscious of when I've been doing scenario design for the last uh, few projects I've worked on, that try to set up just situations and then throw in elements that can disrupt them along the way or potentially nudge them one way or the other. But it then makes it a lot more interesting for me, as echoing what Scott said, that I don't want the same bloody A leads to B leads to C leads to D that, um, for a scenario to be run 15 or 16 times over the course of several conventions. I want something to happen differently every time for me to react and bump against all the stuff that they throw at me. That's what I love. My experience of being a player in, let's say, an ongoing campaign, sometimes it's apparent to me the choices we should take to stay in the campaign, and that feels like I'm just kind of metagaming it and not really doing what I want to do, but I'm kind of doing what I feel we should be doing to stay in the campaign and you know I kind of feel like I'm being kind of herded in that direction whereas in the best games I feel that the there there are no um, blinkers I can just go whichever way I want it I feel like it's a, a, a character-led game a player-led game thinking of one instance though that that option where you have every angle that you could go down it's from personal experience as well, I remember it suddenly makes getting a handout and realizing, holy shit, we found the right path, all the more, all the more enjoyable. <laughs> like when we played a campaign that you were running, Paul, and it was the first time we've seen a handout in two months. It was, holy shit, we've done something right. <laughs> I guess often it's an illusion for the players to think they can do absolutely anything. Well, to some degree, an illusion. They kind of can do anything they like, but there's usually, you know, within a scenario, a, a limited palette of things that they might kind of fall into well we did spend some time in the beginnings episode talking about motivations for the characters and you know the reasons why they might be going off and engaging with the scenario and i think that that initial decision that initial setup informs a lot of what you're talking about so they're kind of going in the right direction but kind of how they steer left and right a bit that they're still kind of going in that general direction yeah so i mean if for example You've created a character who is all about avenging his father's death or something like that. And you've told the GM about this and, you know, the GM has worked it into the backstory and, you know, you're embarking on this. Then there's some expectation that this is what your character will do. If you as a player then, you know, immediately turn around and say, right, so, you know, I'm going to go off and apply for a job in musical theatre. And it's sort of, okay, 
right, I'll be still playing the same game. <laughs> you mentioned a moment ago about hitting a, a block in the game, Scott. So what do you do, Matt and Scott, what do you do when players... When the game kind of grinds to a bit of a halt and the players are kind of either looking at each other not sure what to do or they're just engaged in what seems an interminable discussion maybe about getting equipment or about all the vast number of uh, plans they can make. How do you kind of break that stall in the game? If it's an argument about equipment, I just say, look, you can have whatever you want. That I pretty much I, I take out that, that minutiae. I do not want to spend... Um, out an hour at a game table in a convention slot saying how much pennicon have I got I want them to just say I've got all the shit let's run with it unless it's something like they want I want a thermonuclear detonator or something ridiculously complex or death rare, ray or rare. oh no they can have that okay <laughs> but anything that would be so outlandish that said no sure yes. sure yeah. I mean, obviously, this depends very much on the kind of game you're playing. And there are certain games where equipment is a vital part of it. I mean, like Dungeons and Dragons or some sort of modern action games. There's a reason I don't run them. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, if you've got big items of equipment that you're perhaps paying for, you know, uh, using points from your character build to pay for, then that shopping part or kitting up part becomes a very important thing. In a game like Call of Cthulhu, yeah, if it takes longer than 30 seconds, I think it's a waste of time. Mm-hmm. But I was using that as an example of a roadblock. But you know, what, going back to the roadblock thing, you know, when they when they kind of stall, what what things can we throw at them? Cultist with a Tommy gun. Well, there's always the cultist <laughs> running in with a gun. Yeah, I, for me, it is. Yeah, I tend to use NPCs as tools an awful lot. So if people are stuck, I will throw NPCs into the mix to um, perhaps push them in a different direction, give them a clue, perhaps you know just a dire, particularly bloody and violent death in front of them to you know raise the stakes somewhat. And just give them another sand check. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yes. If everyone's standing around dithering about what to do in a tense situation, in a dangerous situation. Uh, having an NPC sort of running past on fire, screaming, and something running up by, behind them with a ray gun, you know, sort of immediately focuses the player's attention. So it's something that kind of draws the player's attention, something you can throw in. Yeah, normally the action comes to them rather than them having to go find it, which is, say, the tool I use. So I think we have a name for that, right? I assume what you're talking about then, Paul, is bangs. Yes, I believe that's a bit of Ron Edward terminology, isn't it? Yeah, we talked about kickers in the previous episode, in the beginnings episode, and bangs are another tool that comes out of Sorcerer. This is probably you know a name for something that a lot of GMs were doing beforehand. But again, Sorcerer is the first game that I remember seeing that actually formalised this. So the idea of a bang is it's a problem or a situation that the GM throws at the players or their characters which cannot be ignored, demands action, but has no uh, predetermined solution to it. Thinking of Lord of the Rings, it's like when the hobbits are just just going through the Shire and everything's fine, and then they see in the distance, they hear a, a horse coming, and it's the Black Rider, and they have to hide, and then, you know, the pursuit and so on. It's It's something that the GM can kind of bring in when things are just kind of meandering, having a list of those and this is probably like scott said this is this isn't something that is especially different it is probably something that if you're a experienced gm you probably already do is to have a list of things that you can throw at the players when you want to inject a bit of energy into the game and get things moving 
I know, for example, when I'm going through the developmental stage or the playtesting stage of a scenario I'm working on, that I will tend to structure it in terms of an opening scene, you know, a bit of background for myself, and then a series of bangs. These are the things that I throw at the players, uh, just see where stuff goes. And most of the time, if I'm writing up the scenario afterwards, I will just sort of keep those bangs in there. I, I won't necessarily call them bangs if it's a Call of Cthulhu scenario. I'll call them events or something like that. But they are the things that keep the pace moving. And they don't necessarily have an order either. I mean, they can come out of order. So as Keeper, if you've got a list of those things, you can kind of pick and choose which ones to bring in when and maybe you leave some out. Bangs aren't always the right tool to use, though, in an investigative game. There is the requirement that the players uh, or their characters are going to go and sniff around and find these clues and work out what to do next. I, what do you two do if you find yourself in a situation where the players find themselves completely stymied, where they don't know where to go for the next clue, or if they've done something that has perhaps uh, made the next clue that you're planning on giving them inaccessible, like you know, burning down the library that had the book they needed to read? Move the book somewhere else. It's that simple. You, you don't stick to a hard and fast X is here. You put it wherever it's going to be easiest for the PCs to find it. If it means that it's suddenly it's the next door neighbor's um, book collection, it's in there. It's wherever they are going and look like they're going. You adjust the scenario to their actions so it makes it look like you're kind of almost lulling them into a false, uh, not so it's false sense of security, but you're bending the scenario to their needs definitely. And how about you, Paul? When the players are completely stuck and don't know what to do next, how would you handle that? That's a tricky one. I guess that I use the idea of bangs as. You know, if they are kind of stymied and, and unsure what to do next, then I'll use something else off my list of events that I can bring in. I might bring in an NPC with some information. I might talk to the players and ask them what they think is going on. Ultimately, I might call for an idea roll. In general, things seem to, to flow along. So it's not often that I hit a point where it's just, um, you know, that you kind of don't know what to do next. I think a lot of what you're talking about here comes down to scenario design as well and the way things are presented in the scenario and sort of structured to deal with this in advance. I mean, one of the things I would do if they're, if they're in that situation, I'd say to them, you know, what do you, want to, what do you want to do? And if they're all kind of looking a bit blank, I'd say, well, you know, so you're spending a, a while sort of reading the books and, uh, you know, just living life well let's cut forward to three days time unless anybody's doing anything else when i've got something to sort of hit them with so i'll just sort of move the action forwards because you know they don't seem to be doing much so if they've holed up in new york in an apartment doing research and not really sure what to do then yeah be be ready to you don't have to play through every minute of every day you can say okay well three weeks have passed here's what's happening now I think that takes us on nicely to the idea of scene framing. But before we do that, just to double back, I disagree slightly with, with what you just said about that being part of scenario design. 
in that, yes, certainly, I mean, these are things when you're writing a published uh, scenario that you try to take into account. You try to give the keeper options and cover as many eventualities as you can. But you're never going to cover everything. The players will always do unexpected things. They'll look in places you never expect and not look in the places you do expect. You know, that library will burn down. And I think you as a keeper have to learn how to look at the scenario in such a way that you're not beholden to what's on the page, that you're willing to improvise and adapt and and lift those elements out, shift them around, and not feel like, you know, just because the scenario writer told you that the copy of the Necronomicon is hidden in the nightstand, that that's the only place it can be. And now, let's take a look at what we mean by scene framing. It makes me think of Casino Royale with Daniel Craig when he's driving along that road and he flips the car and, you know, I guess he, he's blacked out or whatever. And the next scene, if you imagine your character, you know, that's your, your PC. As I recall, correct me if I'm wrong, but the next scene... He's been taken captive. He's in a cell and he's strapped to a chair with the bottom of it cut out. I've got an itch. Being tortured for information. And that's some pretty hard scene framing for the for the GM just to say, OK, well, you had a car accident, you black out. OK, you wake up, you're in a cell tied to a chair. Yeah, I mean, scene framing it covers all sorts of things. I mean, it can be that really hard scene framing you just talk about. It can be something more gentle. I mean, the, the simplest form of scene framing for me is just, you know, the GM saying to the players, right, what do you do now? That is a sort of scene framing. On the whole, though, it you know, for me, it means that, you know, the GM says, right, OK, let's move on to this bit. Your characters, you know, are travelling from, you know, Cairo to New York at this stage. We don't want to play through the entire journey there. Let's just say, right, your characters have arrived in New York. You know, the boat pulls into the harbour, and at that stage there are 15 cultists with Tommy guns waiting for you. So we'll start the scene there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, any real cultist needs a Tommy gun. You see, for me, I'm... I kind of err away from aggressive scene framing. It's something I find with um, the likes of Primetime Adventures, where it's definitely scene, 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 that it's got a bit too much of a disconnect for me. I try to soften the line between the two by at least doing some kind of interaction, maybe even if it's just like saying the kind of montage sequence of you're going up this road and describing a little bit of what's happening around you, without it just being a hard end and start again. It seems to break flow far too much for me. I, I like to at least kind of lead them in slightly and make it feel more cohesive as a string of events that take place. About scene framing, I think if you are a GM, you do scene framing. And whether you do it collaboratively with your players and ask them, you know, what are you doing next? Where are you going? Are you going to the library? OK, well, you go to the library. It's, you know, it's an old brick building on the edge of town and, you know, there's a nice old librarian and you start describing the place. You're framing the scene uh, or you might ask, they might sort of say, well, I'm going to my house. And you might ask the player what it's like, in which case the, the player is kind of framing the scene there. So it's partly about describing the situation, which we always do. And that can be the GM or a player. And it's partly about describing, you know, what the NPCs are doing, what the PCs are doing, what position they're in. And that can kind of, that's, there's a big broad scale of that. It can be very gentle and collaborative to very hard and definite. And the, 
kind of like I would say hard scene framing is often what we have as GMs we have the most license to do at the start of the game with an opening scene particularly if we're doing it in media's res so the opening scene is uh, you just witnessed a car crash and um, your your car is skidding towards the car in front of you you know what are you all doing that's kind of like you know that's hard scene framing but you kind of have a license to do that because up to that point the players haven't had any um, active voice in the game so it's quite rare i think in most games that you would repeat that hard scene framing i'd say one argument for not necessarily hard scene framing but more uh more direct scene framing than what you were talking about matt is i think this tends to happen more with one shots than campaigns but the number of times i've seen groups of player characters or investigators who basically seem to operate like sharks they never stop moving they never sleep and you start the situation off, you start the game off, and it's, right, okay, yeah, we'll go off, we'll do this, we'll do that, and so on. You say, right, okay, you've done these things, it's getting around to one in the morning, what are you doing now? Okay, well, now we'll do this, that, and the other. Okay, After taking our amphetamines. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and they never stop to sleep or eat or interact with anything in their normal lives. or They're all uh, Jack Bauer. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Uh, and I, I don't know, again, this doesn't really work for me. I, and it also makes it very difficult sometimes where you've got a scenario where you've got events that play out over a few days or something like that, and there's a bit of a timing track, and the players all want to do everything now. And there's no opportunity for the suspense to build, there's no opportunity for events to unfurl. And I think by using more aggressive scene framing and saying, right, you know, you've done this, okay, right, now it's the following morning, your characters are all well-rested, bang, you know, then this happens. And you can facilitate that with your group, not by, and we were using the term aggressive scene framing, but not unpleasant and confrontational, but by saying, okay, well, is everybody okay if we move on to the next day then and maybe mm. cut out some stuff and we're, you know, at the dock and you're getting on the boat? Or, you know, so, so you're moving it on to almost like you're moving it on to the next bang on your list, the next event on your list. Yeah. So you can ask the players, uh, you can ask the players maybe, okay, should we cut to the scene where you're arriving at the old mansion? Does it, and then you can throw in, does anybody want to have done anything before we get there? And just give them the in to sort of say, oh, yeah, I wanted to pop by the shop and get, you know, something. A shotgun. Usually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and dynamite. Yeah. What self-respecting investigator doesn't go anywhere without dynamite? Come on. You know, the ultimate Call of Cthulhu investigator weapon has got to be a shotgun that shoots dynamite. I so want that now. <laughs> there probably is such a thing. <laughs> well, it's make... a grenade launcher, isn't it, pretty <laughs> much? Could you use it as a crossbow? You tie the, di you tie the dynamite to the, the, the shot. It sounds entirely safe, Matt. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing could go wrong with that. <laughs> Double zero, boom. <laughs> but fundamentally, scene framing is all about moving past the boring bits. I, I've played with too many groups who will just play through the boring bits, and it's sort of, then my character does this, then he does that, then he goes down the shops, and then he does the other, and so on. And, you know, play through every interaction with every minor NPC when it could be that... You know, nothing interesting is going to come out of that and it's just you know more interesting for the group as a whole and you as a gm to say right you know you talk to the reverend you know he tells you the church burnt down in 1923 uh let's move on to the next scene something in the call of cthulhu seventh head rules that does give you license to do this is the idea role so if the players are completely stuck on what to do and haven't really picked up on some of the clues that they've received or, or not received 
then the idea role allows them to make a role which will either flag that information to them in one of two ways. Either they just get the information and you kind of um, prompt them and sort of say, well, you remember when you went to that place, there's this thing, that's, that's the clue. Or if they fail it, then you can present them with the information, but in that kind of, um, but frame a scene where they're in trouble and they're getting the information. So um, the I bad guy's it, just told you his plan while you're strapped to the altar. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, so maybe a confrontational scene such as that. And to some extent, uh, pushed roles allow you to do that as well. If, if a character fails a pushed role, that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't get the information they were after. It just means, again, you've got the license to perhaps frame a new bad scene in exactly yeah. the same kind of way. Yeah. And now we look at building and maintaining atmosphere. So what's the biggest thing that can actually break the atmosphere in the game? Can I go for a fag break? <laughs> yeah? yeah. And um, people looking at their phones, people... Unwanted humour, kind of, you know, going too far, yeah. a bit of humour is okay, but if it kind of really deviates from the tone you're looking for... Monty Python quotes. Yeah, I mean, that's a big thing. It's a really difficult balance to hit because humour and horror will always be kissing cousins. And... Every group will have moments where something that should be nasty happens at the table and they'll just laugh about it just because that is what human beings do. There's a huge difference between that and, yeah, sitting there quoting Monty Python or Terry Pratchett or whatever, you know, and, and just taking things off topic. Unless everybody's doing that, but it, it's kind of like handling... Does this come down to how you handle somebody who's not really meshing with the rest of the group? Yeah, I think it's a big part of that, and there's certainly certainly scope for having a conversation with that person afterwards and just sort of saying, is this working for you, is this the right game for you? I think also that it's worth sort of perhaps sometimes having that conversation with everyone up front, because for horror games in particular, atmosphere is such a delicate thing. I don't think it matters quite as much with other genres of rpgs but if you're trying to build that sense of dread and horror in an rpg you want to try to avoid digressions side talks jokes as much as possible letting the players know that up front and perhaps you know even every now and then just speaking up sort of saying oh yeah actually can we keep this on topic will go quite a lot to building that tone but i would say the key thing there is not to try and do it in the game try and do it I mean, during the game, but kind of just step out of character for a okay. moment. Step out. Yes. You're not. Don't do it through an NPC. Do it. You know, as as you talking to the players and say, okay, can we just drop the game for a moment? You know, is everybody happy with how it's going? I mean, kind of like you said, Scott. But I think trying to gauge whether people are on board with that because sometimes it doesn't take that much for somebody to for the penny to drop and sort of say, oh, actually, no, I'm being a bit of a dick here, and you know, actually, yeah. everybody wants to be more intense about this and actually i do enjoy that too if the players not minded to do that then don't try to fix everybody well no it could be that they're just you know the wrong person for that game yeah they want something more light-hearted and that's just not what you're trying to do yeah and also you, you put me in mind of one of the best bits of rpg advice i ever read and it was on the forum some time back but it's a very, very simple bit of advice that I think you know should be in every RPG book, 
which is don't try to fix out-of-game problems with in-game uh, play. Mm. So, you know, if someone is, you know, being digressive, being a bit of a dick, um, you know, doing things that you don't like, don't try to punish them with game mechanics, don't get NPCs to kill them and take their stuff. Oh, my God, punishing your players. Yeah. I've heard that <laughs> phrase used seriously a yeah. number of times by other GMs, and I just think, what? I, I can think of a few instances in the various LARPs that I've played where it's people have said, well, resolve it in character. I'm thinking, no, 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 if I want to resolve it, it'll be like a baseball bat to your face. It's not the kind of problem that you're going to solve in a game. <laughs> this is this is different. I think all I can do is is bring this topic up. I can't suggest answers to you, the listener, if you have this problem with people in your games. It's something you have to sort out as human beings. The one bit of advice I would offer is just reiterating something I said a moment ago, which is not every game is for every player. Mm. And you know, just because you've got a group of friends who get together to play you know, an RPG every week, you want to switch over to playing Call of Cthulhu or another horror game, something that's very atmosphere-heavy. You may find there's one player there who doesn't like that. So, I mean, the, the solutions are generally... Put up with the fact that you've got one person who'll break the atmosphere the whole time, play a different game, or just say to the person, you know, while we play this for a couple of weeks, you know, do you mind sitting out? Uh, I mean, that's a very difficult thing to do and might make the person feel excluded. But if it's going to make the game more fun for everyone else, then it's an option. Mm-hmm. I guess if this you feel this is an issue with the group, that they're not really getting the way you want to run it. If it's not your, particularly if it's not your regular group, if it's a bunch of people you don't know so well, or even if it is your regular group, I suppose, and they, it's clear, it becomes clear to you as GM that they all want to play it in a different kind of way to the, how you're doing it. Just try and adapt to them. Yeah. Um, if they're all in for a, a light-hearted kind of fun game, even the grittiest, most unpleasant kind of horror scenario can probably be hammed up a bit. Oh dear God, yes. We've talked about some of the things that can break that sense of atmosphere, but how do we go about building it up? I think it's partly, for me, through playing the NPCs uh, and drawing the players into the game. So, I mean, I'm a big fan of speaking in the character's voice and encouraging the players to do that as well. And rather than asking them to do that, you know, I'll, I'll engage... I'll, I'll you know, describe an NPC kind of sidling up to them and then talking to them, trying to just draw them into the situation. And I think for a horror game in particular, having something that's a bit off about that NPC, I've certainly found myself freaking players out at the table with bits of NPC description that didn't necessarily have anything to do with the horror that was going on in the game. I remember, for example, a game of Cult I ran many years ago at a convention. And... Um, there was an improvised bit where the players went off, or a couple of the players went off to speak to an NPC. And, you know, I, I described him as, you know, sort of sitting there surrounded by the remains of, you know, a Chinese takeaway meal that had been, you know, obviously sitting out there for a while. Now, some of the things were beginning to go green. During the course of the conversation, you know, he just picks up this rather rancid uh, spare rib and starts picking the last bits of meat off it. And, you know, as, as a GM, I just sort of made a few sound effects and, you know, described the, the bit of rancid um, juice coming off it as dribbling down his chin and so on. And I think, I think that invoked more horror in the game than any of the nasty, visceral stuff that came later. The disturbing thing was that you were using a real-life prop, though, Scott. Oh, 
oh, yeah. you know, picking up that three-week-old spare rib and chewing on it, that, that was going to turn anybody's stomach. I, really. I keep one in my pocket at all times. Yeah, can you put that away, like that. please? <laughs> it's where the marrow starts leaking out at the end of it. That you really... <sighs> I mentioned earlier about the GM kind of facilitating the game and, and helping to coordinate things. I think the players often look to the GM for how to play the game. Mm. And you're almost like a, I don't want to like make it sound too big a deal, but you're almost like a role model at that moment. If you're really getting into character and really taking it quite seriously, or if one of the players takes the lead and does that, then everybody else is like, oh, oh that's good. We can do that too. Whereas if you just keep it light and just describe everybody in the third person then the players will kind of tend to do that as well. And there's the thing of, as Keeper, and this is something I got from Kiri Birch, who loves being able to have the table, and you've got to have a room big enough to do this, but have the table with the players sat at it and actually be able to stand up and move around the table because it's quite a strange experience. Usually the Keeper or the GM is just sat there, you know, behind their Keeper screen, rolling dice and talking to you, and it's quite passive physically but if you're actually getting up and moving or even just walking around the room you know that 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 changes the atmosphere quite a lot and it allows you as as gm just to 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 bend into people and just whisper in their ear and say uh you know that guy over there he's looking at you very oddly what's (laughs) what's he got in his pocket they're always bitching behind your back aren't they why is he saying these things about you (laughs) Like like you're almost the voice in their head, mm-hmm. um, and it, it you know it just it's a it's a bit of fun, but it kind of brings a different dynamic to it. But it also feels like a sort of prowling predatory beast moving around the table. Yeah, or maybe that's just Curie. <laughs> I quite like just standing up as as GM, uh, even if I'm not able to move around the table. I think standing up and being able to portray some of the physicality of the NPCs, or just be able to you know uh, wave your arms around or you know, be a bit more demonstrative i guess <laughs> yeah i I've, I've seen the way that you it is weird I, when you play characters who have got accents paul your body language <laughs> changes completely and your, your, your hand gestures become more emphatic your you know they're flying around your hands are flying around like frightened birds and I don't know. There was something. There was at some stage where you were attempting to play, I think, a character with a Glaswegian accent, and you were getting so manic with your hands that I thought you were going to end up punching me in the face. <laughs> <laughs> I think a huge part of building up this atmosphere also comes out of the general narration you do, not just uh, the NPCs, but the way you describe things. I mean, Paul, earlier, I mean, you were talking before about the way you set up uh, a scene by describing the location and some of the details and so on around there. And for me, a really important part of making the player feel like they're there is not just describing visual details, but describing smells and sounds, the temperature, stuff like that. I actually don't think I'm very good at giving in-depth descriptions of locations I'm not sure that I do it that much. I'm, it, it's hard for me to assess how much I do it, but I think I kind of give hints of it because when I'm playing in, in Matt's game and, and Scott's game, I feel they do it a lot more than me. They do a better job of that. But I kind of feel that I have a kind of mental image of the location and I'll, I'll throw in a few things. And I kind of wonder if my players 
paint that picture based on a few hints and it might be that each one's kind of got a different picture in their head and and that's fine and i know one of my players um, has talked to me about some of the the images that she has in her head as a player of the scenes in the game and they, and they stick with her for ages and you know they're very vivid i don't tend to visualize the the scenes in my head that strongly I think not in that way. I get a kind of a, a sense of atmosphere, but but I don't really see like a picture in front of my eyes. When I'm, when I'm creating places, I do tend to imagine them very, very vividly. I, I use a couple of different techniques for that. One is just pure imagination, imagining myself in somewhere that's a bit like I described. A much more... Uh, a much easier way of doing that is simply to, it, particularly if you're improvising locations, is to draw upon places you've been. If you're going to have a scene that's set in an old house or something like that, think of an old house that you've been to. Use the you know the rough floor plans, the uh, the depictions of the crumbling uh, wallpaper, and you know perhaps mouse droppings on the ground. The you know, the 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 faint smell of mould and rising damp. Uh, the way that the the windows rattle slightly in the wind. Uh, and these elements, you know, that, that you're remembering from the place you've been, will just gradually bring that place alive for the players. One thing that a good friend of ours, Todd, used um, in one game that he ran for us a little while ago, where he used the concept of an unreliable narrator, which is where certain things that you present at the table aren't necessarily exactly what they should be, but then there's a reason for that. When it comes particularly to Cthulhu, the, direct, the descriptions I give that result in a sanity check, I'm getting into the habit more of asking for the sand roll first before I do any description. Mm. So, for instance, right, uh, so the player says, I want to go into that room. Okay, you open the door, give me a sand check. And then, depending right. whether they succeed or fail, will be uh, will, uh, very much tailor the description I give to them. Because if they fail it and are under a delusion, oh, there's your grandmother sat in there making a cup of tea. Yes. And and if you pass it, maybe you rationalised or downplayed some elements of it. Yeah. Or just even you didn't see certain aspects of it. Right. Um, case in point with a game that we recently played, you're walking down a path and out in the countryside and you start looking around, you could see a tree over, over in the distance, you pass that sand check, it might be a dark young. Hmm. But that will obviously tell the description. And something that I know Scott particularly uh, favours is regards to names of beasties. Hmm. I can't think you ever use them, do you? No, no, I, I never use the names of creatures at the table. Um, I will also try to stray away as much as I can from canon descriptions. Again, I'll give vague sensory impressions. So, you know, for example, if I'm describing Amigo, I may describe, you know, um, something with too many limbs moving around uh, a bit strangely, the, you know, the occasional glint of light off uh, something black and shiny, a buzzing noise or something like that. But I won't go into a full-on description of it. Because uh, apart from anything else, I'd like to think that in a situation like that, where you are confronted by something that just could not possibly be, something that is an affront to your senses and your conception of reality, that you wouldn't be sitting there sort of calmly cataloguing every detail of it, that there would just be certain elements of it that jump out at you and your mind at that stage would just try to shut down as much as possible. And saying it's got lots of legs, suddenly my mind, if I'm frightened of spiders, then my mind jumps to something about, you know, spiders. And it just it's just enough to kind of trigger, trigger some primal fears, I think. You know, it doesn't need to be in-depth um, description. And another advantage of not going too in-depth with these descriptions, particularly when it comes to violence, 
If you go too over the top, it can tip over into being silly and ridiculous. And again, if you're trying to avoid things being too funny at the table and that release of humour, then, you know, there's a bit of a difference between, you know, describing someone getting stabbed and, you know, them feeling cold and, you know, trying to work out why their, you know, their clothes are suddenly wet and that searing pain that's beginning to build up, or describing how, you know, suddenly their stomach splits open and all their entrails are down on the ground and they're thrashing around like a fish. The latter one could work in certain games, and, you know, I certainly, you know, have used descriptions like that, but it could be so over the top that, you know, it, it ends up provoking unwanted laughter. And when it comes to maintaining atmosphere, part of that is, to me, is maintaining the mystery. One surefire way to mess that up for me is to tell the players accidentally what's going on so sometimes i'll get to the point where i'll ask the players for a recap maybe if it's a you know an ongoing game we're at the start of the next session i'll ask the players to do the recap because if i tell them what happened last week sometimes the penny will drop because i'll i'll describe what was actually going on and inadvertently tell them things that they didn't actually hadn't actually figured out and i want that sense of mystery or that you highlight something that you think is particularly significant but they may have otherwise missed. Absolutely. And and they will sometimes highlight things that I've forgotten uh, that might not be essential to the plot, but if they, if they mention it, then, you know, I can maybe draw that in again and build on it. And I think that word reincorporation is a big tool in the GM's armoury. If you've had some creepy old NPCs or, or any NPCs, really, that you've already established... If you can bring those in again later in the game, that's much better than just creating new NPCs because A, it's kind of easier and B, it provides a sense of continuity of of, of building story and the players will recognise that NPC, start to develop some kind of relationship or memory of them. No, I, I love doing that, laying seeds at the beginning that seem fairly innocuous and then have them come back later as a more significant factor in the game. Something I'm quite a fan of in game to sort of keep the the atmosphere and mystique going is taking players to one side. If you're going to do that, I I tend to try and keep that to as brief a time as possible because it does mean leaving the room and leaving the group. So, but I think being able to take a player to one side, perhaps, you know, particularly when that character's gone off on their own or they've developed an insanity perhaps or they've they've discovered something that they might want to keep secret from the rest of the group to be able to take them to one side and tell them about that and then they come back and you know how they how they deal with that then is up to them but it can add a lot of um, intrigue among the group yeah it's a counterpoint i really dislike doing that um for exactly the reasons you said because it does leave the other players sitting there i I've had too many experiences where, you know, I, I think I'm going aside for a quick, uh, you know, conversation with one of the players and th- they'll suddenly start saying, oh, and then I do this, then I do this and so on. And before you know it, 10 minutes have gone. Oh, right. No, no. It's, it's got to be like a couple of minutes max, really. It's got to be yeah. brief. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a difficult thing to pull off. Um, what I tend to do more myself is uh, just find you know, coded or subtle ways of exchanging that information with the player. I don't even like using notes, but it's just sort of, oh, you know, that thing in your background relating to your sister, well, that's pertinent at this point, or, you know, are are you doing that thing that involves the box on your sheet at the moment, or that kind of thing? 
if, if I ever take anyone aside, it is purely for to A, dispense one piece of information to them or A, ask them or B, ask them one question. It is only one instance at any one time because I've I've been on the receiving end of when players have been out there for far too long and I think it's shit. So keep them back in as long as they can. I mean, you mentioned notes there, Scott. I mean, I will use notes and Matt should just have a book of notes that say, can I buy some dynamite? Just so, <laughs> just so it's like perforated so he can just yeah. take one out every game. Because I've had that note from you multiple times. <laughs> I, I was actually thinking, because I'm doing some artwork for the minute for a uh, for a tabletop game coming up that I'm running in a uh, couple of months, uh-huh. um, having a deck printed of stock responses like that. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same thing. I think we should kickstart that. Yeah, or alternatively, yeah, don't just save those for games. Just go around handing random people on the street, you know, the cars that say, "Can I buy some dynamite?" Yeah, where do I get the dynamite? Yeah. Where are the well, nuclear vessels? <laughs> One of the things you've got to be careful of when being vague and building that sense of mystery, though, is making sure that the players don't end up being left floundering. I mean, we touched upon this in the previous segment. But if if you're being so vague and mysterious that they just can't figure out what the hell to do next, then you've gone too far. Sure. I mean, that's that's what we talked about earlier. I mean, you've kind of got to have a a sense of where your players are at. As GM, you, you're keeping a, a kind of close eye on your players and the atmosphere and how engaged and enthusiastic they are. And that can be high drama and, and laughing and... and you know, getting into combats and so on, or it can be a kind of a quiet, foreboding sense of drama. Whatever tone it is, it's got you've got to feel that the players are engaged with it and and try to you know facilitate that. Yeah, and also I suppose if you're being misleading and they end up you know following red herrings, as long as those red herrings are fun and as long as you can find some kind of satisfying payoff to them that's not just oh you've spent half an hour you know following this NPC and he turns out to be the local postman then, you know, again, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm, I wouldn't tend to... I don't tend to go for red herrings too much, I think. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I will say, particularly if it, if it's a one-off game and the players are looking like they're going to be following up some red herring which isn't going to go anywhere, I will just... I mean, going back to scene framing again, I almost sort of say that, OK, well, you, you follow this guy for a while, he goes home, it soon becomes apparent to you that... Actually, it's nothing to do with your investigation. Let's go back to what we were doing a few minutes ago. So I'll kind of try and curtail that sometimes. But, I mean, if it looks like it's going to develop into something interesting, then by all means go with it. Uh, but I guess I'd do that in, in terms of both conservation of time and interest. Well, we're talking about building atmosphere here. I mean, how do we actually actively build up that sense of, of dread, of foreboding that that things are not going to end well. For example, I personally, the one thing that I'm probably more of a fan of, particularly in one-shots than anything else, is that feeling of things spiralling out of control. That perhaps, you know, the player characters find themselves in a neutral or fairly bad situation to begin with. But then, you know, things start going wrong. They start realising the scope of the problem is worse than they thought. They realise that they're in more trouble than they realised. And these problems just keep building up and escalating. And, and they never have a chance to feel safe. They never have a chance to feel like they're in control of the whole thing. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you never want them to feel like it's pointless for them to do anything. But at the same time, if they feel too in control of the situation, they feel like they understand too much about what's going on or they know 
you know, precisely how to solve the problems that they're faced with, then I think that that robs the situation of any sense of horror or dread. One thing that I've realised, this isn't something I deliberately set out to do, but it's something I've noticed a while back that I do quite a lot in games, is provide every now and then recaps of what the situation is. Um, and it, perhaps even just in the middle of a scene, but it's sort of, you're right, so-and-so is down on the ground uh, bleeding, you know, the wall's on fire behind you, the roof's beginning to collapse, the monster's bursting out of the ground in front of you. Right, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, I think that's very important, and that's something I do as well, is, is that recap thing, because I know as a player how easy sometimes it is to get distracted particularly you've got your character sheet particularly if there's information on it maybe you're looking at that you're not involved in the scene and you're not paying 100% attention to what's going on and then suddenly the GM comes to you and says oh um, you know you've arrived what are you doing and you're like oh uh, I'm not really sure what's going on providing that recap for people just just make sure everybody's on the same page as well because people may be paying full attention but may have misinterpreted quite what's going on especially if there's a lot of players yeah yeah definitely but particularly in bad situations if you do that recap in an urgent way and just emphasize the nastiness or you know the problems that the players are facing and the imminence of the danger exactly then that really ramps up the tension Mm mm-hmm On perhaps a a lower key setting, one of the things I try to do, we're talking about mid-game. So this can be in Call of Cthulhu, the kind of investigator phase of play, whereby we're trying to build the player background, the character background. If there's a break between like one chapter and the next or or an extended period of downtime in the game tried to get the players to to talk about what their character is doing there's a mechanic in call of cthulhu for recovering some sanity tried to get them to narrate a little scene about their character and just just builds on the you know the character background and makes them feel a bit more invested portrays their character a little more clearly another thing i'll tend to do if details come up in play which are questioned so it's 1898 you know, is it likely this this house would have a flushing toilet or running water or a telephone? Who is on the throne? Who is prime minister? You know, sort of minutiae and details, unless they're kind of key to the, the scenario, then rather than kind of somebody getting their phone out and looking it up and, and getting into a, a discussion about the, the, the pros and cons of this thing, you know, it's just a game. So I'll just sort of say, well, uh, I'm not really sure if that would have been the case, but, you know, let's, unless anybody disagrees, let's just go with it. Yeah. And a similar kind of thing, I think, comes up with rules discussions as well. Yeah. With Call of Cthulhu, I think partly because I've played it for so long, I mean, even with 7th edition, you know, through the various playtests, uh, it's sunk in enough that, you know, it's everything I need to know is in my head. So as Keeper, I pretty well never have to look anything up. Every now and then I'll have to perhaps use a table if I'm rolling for a random bout of madness or something like that. So I'll keep the Keeper screen there just as a quick reference. But most of the time, I try to avoid stopping for anything to do with the rules. It's not that I don't use the rules, but I don't want to get bogged down in rules discussions. And I've seen this happen in other games, particularly at conventions, but you know, games I've, I've played online or, or ga- recordings of games I've listened to online. 
And, you know, for me, few things bog the game down quite as much as discussions about, oh, you know, do, do you think there should be a hard or an extreme role? Or does does this particular skill apply here or does that? Or, you know, are you sure that gun does quite as much damage? Because I think you'll find the calibre of ammunition in it is this and so on. Particularly by the time you get into a couple of players arguing over it and the keeper trying to, you know, keep everyone happy and stuff like that. You've just killed any tension you've built. Yeah, I, I, there's one scene which has stuck for me even years ago that it happened in a LARP game I was playing. Um, one guy did a... Um, he actually came up with a really nice player-driven plot that he'd been culturing and uh, cultivating and so on, and then did a big reveal with it. And the very first reaction that came out of one player's mouth was saying that that power doesn't work like that. And it <laughs> instantly... Oh, yeah, it just instantly killed the mood. Yeah. Don't be that player. Just don't. And one final tool I think is very, very useful for keeping that sense of tension going is time pressure. And this can be the in-game time pressure of, you know, you know you've got to try to finish the game within three hours because that's how long you're, you know, before you have to head off and go home and, and go to bed for work the following day. Or it can be the in-game one of, um, you know, we have this deadline, you know, the world is going to end at midnight and we have to stop the ritual to do this. Yeah, in one instance, I actually had uh, like an egg timer and I turned it upside down and put it on the table because it, it was clear that something was about to happen and the players are kind of talking about what they're going to do and then one of them sort of looking at the egg timer and saying, is that important? What's that thing for? And then they kind of clocked what it was. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just something to yeah. engage and, and ramp up that sense of, of tension and drama. And if you do have players who are sitting there discussing their plans over and over again, and you know, it's what do we do that you know, here or that or whatever, do treat that as in-character conversation. And if you do have that time pressure going. Then just every now and then, just you know, remind them you know the smoke's building up in the room, or you you know the ground's rumbling more and more, or you know the black shape of the window is growing larger. And sometimes cut through the the waffle and just say, Matt, what's your character doing? And if he's constantly sort of saying, oh well, I think we're going to do this, and in a minute we're going to be looking around here, and um, you know, so and so might no, what what is your character doing right now? Lighting right the stick now. <laughs> well that's kind of the default position with you matt but um yeah i think you know try and try and hone in like zoom in directly on that that action well we've pretty well run out of things to say about the middles there and we'll save the endings for another episode the good friends of jackson elias now have a patreon page think of it as an electronic donation box to help with the running costs of the show the podcast will remain free and donations are entirely voluntary. Follow the Patreon link on blasphemoustomes.com. Thanks for listening. Hi there, this is Paul with a quick insert. Unfortunately, we had a recording error on Saturday when we were recording some thanks to our new Patreon backers. So, sorry folks, we're going to have to wait until the next episode for that one. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind you that the deadline for submissions to the Blasphemous Tome is quickly approaching. The Blasphemous Tome is our fanzine, sent only to backers in paper form. There's no PDFs of this one. If you wish to receive a copy, just go to Patreon and back us. 
Now, as we said in the last episode, we have initiated a competition. What we'd like from you is an entry. And what we want is to know what your most horrific, gross, terrifying monster could be. With these monster entries, we're really looking for you to go to town with something new and innovative that perhaps we haven't seen before. We want a good, flavoursome description of something horrific and frightening. We're not just looking for tentacles, although of course we're always looking for those, but we're looking for something that is truly terrifying in some way. Please send us your entries. You can contact us via social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter and Google+. And I guess that means then it's time for... Ask Jackson. Well, once again, we as the earthly vessels of Jackson Elias are here to answer questions from our listeners. If you, at any stage, feel that you need Jackson's shining wisdom to blast away the dark corners and cobwebs of your ignorance or or just those troubling little questions that keep you awake at 3am, then do by all means send them to us uh, via the contact form on the website, uh, via Google+, via Facebook, via Twitter, and let us know what you would like to ask Jackson. And our question this week comes from listener Rich August. Indeed. He writes, Dear Jackson, The last time we met I was attempting to disembowel you with a strangely shaped blade. Perhaps you remember me. I was wearing a particularly natty fez and trying to avoid looking too involved with the whole ritual murder going on. Until, unfortunately, the other blokes thought that meant I was waiting to deliver the old killing blow. The reason I'm writing is to apologise and ask after you. While I think there was fault on both our parts when we broke into your apartment and murdered you, you could have been a touch more hospitable, old chap. I admit we could have handled things better. I'm out of the old cult now, not that you'd know it, but they keep nailing things to my door and sending me the most thoughtful letters, written in a very sticky red ink, and wondered if you had any advice for an ex-cultist and what they might do to make amends. I've tried working with animals, but, well... Old habits die hard on that front, and the chances of me being let back into the New York home for abandoned pets again is slim, so I'm in need of some activities. Can you help me out, Jackson, old man? Once again, apologies about the brutal slaughter and rituals, but, well, we were all young once. Repentant of New York City. Well, before we get into the advice, can I just remind all our listeners that disemboweling someone is largely considered a social faux pas and makes a poor first impression. Do not you, try this at home. Y- you will save yourself an awful lot of apologies if you just simply do not go around disemboweling people. Makes me wonder what it's like moving into a cultist house. You know when you move into a house and you get all that junk mail? There's all these letters arriving for a Mr... Well, it doesn't say a name. A Mr. Repentant of New York City. Some guy... And it's just like, you know, please come back to the cult. Here's a, you know, an introductory offer and, and lots of junk mail catalogues promoting curious shaped blades and uh, spell books. It also strikes me a little bit so close to home thinking that cultists actually sound a bit like they have my day job. That I find various people move in the same industry sector. You find, oh, where did you used to work? Oh, I used to work at this insert competitor's name here. Oh, what about you? Insert another competitor's name here. 
embrace the fact it is a very small industry stroke market. There are other gods out there. Find yourself a new one. So you they have can... a kind of cultist CV that they send round to different <laughs> cults. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it makes mention of the word fez. Therefore, hey, friends, I've got an alphabet up on my CV. That, that, that's going to open a lot of doors. Might open some gates. Maybe not so good to step through those. I am also encouraged by the fact that there is a path out of cultdom. So it makes it sound almost like there is a 12-step programme for cultists, you know, a, a way to sort of leave all the madness behind you. And I, I know, for example, that there is at least one self-help book out there that is, that is devoted to helping cultists leave behind their past called I'm OK, You're a Dangerous Fucking Lunatic. <laughs> And yeah, I, I do recommend any recovering cultist. Is that a real book, there. Scott? Yes, yes, oh, it right. is. No, okay. it's not. <laughs> <laughs> it might have been. <laughs> and our final thoughts. We've obviously presented an awful lot of options here for the keeper, an awful lot of tools that they can use uh, to keep the momentum going on the game and keep their players on their toes and build atmosphere and so on. But if you had to distill it to one vital piece of advice for this, which one would you choose? I could do one sentence, maybe not one piece of advice, because it's double-pronged. Make shit up and roll with what your players throw at you. Done. I would say watch your players and make sure that everybody is engaged and having a good time. What about you, Scott? I suppose mine would be never let the players, or at least their characters, feel safe. Always make them feel like they're on the back foot and in danger, but never never make them feel like there's no point in carrying on. Until Which... there is no point in carrying on. <clears throat> yes. But that'll be next week, right? In uh, <laughs> the next episode of The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, when we talk about endings and how we bring a game to a close. So until next time, it's goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And farewell from me. Blasphemous Tomes.com mm-hmm.